Welcome to the Governance Podcast. I'm Mark Pennington, Director of the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society here at King's College London. One of the key issues in governance studies over the last 30 years has focused on the governance in transition economies, especially those countries that moved away from what are often described as being socialist or planned economies towards a more market-oriented environment. My impression is, though, that in the last maybe 10 years, the discussion of those transition economies has actually rather faded from public view as other concerns have occupied people's attention. So I'm very pleased to have with us today Matthew Mitchell, who is a research fellow or sorry, senior fellow at the Fraser Institute in Canada, who's written a really interesting book on Estonia as an example of a transition economy. And that's what we're going to be focusing on in the Governance Podcast today. So welcome, Matt. Thanks for taking the time to, to do this with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honour to be on your show. Thank you. So this book on Estonia, as I understand it, is part of an overarching project on the realities of socialism, which is looking at a number of countries that basically experience socialism, especially in Eastern Europe, through the post-war period. It's looking at their experience pre-socialism, it's looking at their experience during socialism, and then it's looking crucially at that transition period, basically from the early 1990s through to the present day. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, one part of the project, it's, we, we focus on five different countries, but uh, another part of the project is we conducted a poll of Americans, British, Australians, and Canadians and asked them, you know, what's your perception of socialism? What's your perception of the current system? What would you prefer? And the, you know, remarkable thing is that about a 50, 50% of young people, I think it was 18 to 34, think socialism would be a better system than, uh, you know, the current mixed economies in those four countries. Um, and so, you know, with that in mind, it, you know, it occurs to us that, most people in in um, those countries have no working memory of the Berlin Wall falling. You know, they don't they they weren't old enough to sit around their TVs and watch the you know the jubilation as people gain their freedom. And you know, we're sort of remiss, maybe those of us who are slightly older <laughs> are sort of remiss in not reminding younger generations of what the reality of socialism actually was. And that's that's kind of what the project is about. So the people that you polled there, those are people actually not in, for example, the Eastern Bloc countries. You're talking more about people like in the US, the UK or Canada or wherever the, you know, sort of countries. So what is your That's sense? Right. What is your sense there from in terms of what people understand socialism to be? Is there any yeah, sort question. of unified sense of what people mean or understand by socialism? Do they just think it means something different from what we have? Or do they have any sort of clearer specification of what they think is, me is meant by that system? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, I don't, the, the evidence seems to be that people do not perceive socialism to be the classical traditional definition of socialism that the actual real life socialists once embraced. So, you know, real life socialists, people like Marx and Lenin, they believed socialism was the state controlling the means of production. So you, you don't have private companies, you don't have the economic freedom to start your own business or choose what you're going to make or how you're going to make it or how you're going to price it or whom you're going to sell it to. All of that is essentially planned. And so think of it as like, you know, one big, the country is one big business. 
and you know there there are remnants of this idea, right? You know, Michael Moore. I think I, I remember a few years ago. I think it was on David Letterman talked about how you know wouldn't it be great if we just voted and and made our make our economy up put it up for a vote and basically chose what to produce and how to produce it through the democratic process. Well, in that instance, he was describing actual genuine socialism. Um, what it seems that many people perceive socialism to be when we when we talk to you know Americans, Australians, British, and Canadians, they are saying a larger role for the government. They are saying things like they would like a guaranteed income, more redistribution, that sort of thing. So I, to me, that's a bright spot. You know, they aren't actually embracing the real socialism of you know the mid twentieth century, but you know there are still it, it, you know, a, a substantial minority of people who do actually want the state to control uh, large sections of the economy. And that is still concerning. And I think there's also, you know, we just always have to be careful. Words evolve over time, right? You know, liberalism in the U.S. Yeah. means something different than it than it used to mean. But I, you know, the word socialism is, is evolving. And I, I worry that as we, people are talking about how we should build a socialist society, we're not all in agreement on what exactly that is. <laughs> So, so I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying there is most people actually mean something like an extensive welfare state. So this is one of the reasons why you get countries like Denmark or Sweden sometimes described in the US as socialist, even though they are actually That's deeply right. capitalist right. societies, but they have grafted onto them an extensive redistributive apparatus. Yeah, that's right. And I should add, you know, we do actually have, I, I, I was less involved with these volumes, but we do have some volumes in the series on uh, um, Sweden and uh, Denmark for that very reason. They're, they're often perceived as socialist. One thing I would add about those models is not only are they, you know, quite economically free in almost every dimension except for the size of government, even the size of government is a very different model than a lot of people, say, in North America believe. If you talk to a lot of North Americans, they're going to say, well, I like the Swedish model because it involves a lot of redistribution. In some ways, it doesn't. They have an extensive welfare state, but it's paid for by taxes that are levied on average Swedes. This is true of Denmark as well. They have, you know, some of the their main sources of revenue are a VAT tax or a sales tax and a uh, personal income tax that starts the personal income tax, the highest top marginal tax rate kicks in at a very low level actually in both of those countries. So it's average Swedes, average Danes that actually pay for their pretty generous welfare state. That's not a model that when people in, when you ask people in Britain or Canada or the United States, you know, what, what sort of socialism would you want want in terms of redistribution none of them are saying tax me more <laughs> they're almost mm. always they're a very popular model mm. is to tax very wealthy which you know mathematically is actually difficult to provide that kind of a welfare state if you if you want to do that yeah i mean that that explains why you know people are often surprised you know in conversations i've had with people i know that everyone knows that sweden has certainly compared to the United States and the UK, it has low income inequality. But what people often don't realise, it has actually very high wealth inequality. Sweden's wealth inequality is actually considerably higher than the UK's, probably not higher than the US's, but it's approaching sort of US levels. Mm -hmm. So people often sort of attribute 
high welfare spending with reductions in inequality, but it really does depend on what inequality you're actually looking at. And if you actually do have a system which taxes the average citizen, that means those people basically don't build up savings, which is one of the reasons why in Sweden, arguably, they do have high wealth inequality, because it's only the super rich, basically, who who have saved. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. Okay, well let's 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 go on to this book on Estonia, which I certainly learned a lot about. I mean, I have a sort of vague sense about some of the debates about the transition economies, but frankly, I knew next to nothing about Estonia when I started reading this book. So I wonder if we could start out by talking about the history of Estonia, actually before the socialist period. So how did Estonian economic development compare, say, to other parts of Eastern Europe and to to Western Europe? Yeah, it's an interesting country. I think it flies under the radar. You know, it's a relatively small country, a million people. Uh, and I think what you said is true of most people, including myself, before I started studying it. It's not necessarily a country that is many of us knew a lot about, but it's a it's a fascinating country. So I like to describe it as an ancient people in a in a new country. And what I mean by that is the Estonians as a ethnic group are actually one of the oldest ethnic groups in Europe. But as a country, they really didn't form until relatively recently. Part of that is, you know, we think of the idea of a country, you know, especially folks like you and me, we think of these social movements as kind of a spontaneous order type thing. In some ways, actually, it wasn't. It was a it was a it was an entrepreneurial uh, order where there were in the in the mid part of the 19th century, there were a group of Estonians, you know, intellectuals, school teachers, musicians who really felt that, hey, you know, we've got our own language, we've got our own cultural history, we've got these unique traditions. One of the oldest traditions in Estonia, and this becomes important later, is the singing tradition where they gather and call and in, in, often in the forest around campfires in the summer and in call and response fashion, sing these ancient songs about the history of the world and the history of their people. And so they these these groups in what became known as the national awakening awakening essentially said let's start thinking of ourselves as a country let's encourage schooling and education and knowledge of the language and knowledge of the history and they sort of developed this this understanding now another important aspect of the history of estonia is you know physically they sit on the you know the far eastern edge of europe or you could think the far western edge of asia they are literally at ancient crossroads north south and east west trade routes and they have for centuries been invaded left right north and south <laughs> from poles and swedes and germans and russians some of these invasions actually are viewed on viewed by the estonians as maybe a good thing sweet prosperity they brought property rights they brought economic freedom the germans uh, were generally considered you know one of the worst invaders they they sort of extract extracted as much wealth as they could and so they being this being where they are the crossroads you know, where cultures clash, if, if you like that metaphor, they were basically subject to both voluntary and involuntary exchange over centuries. And it's sort of in the, this environment that they start to develop their national awakening. And it was really in the crucible of the Russian revolution that they gained their independence. So they had been in, been under czarist Russia 
And they sort of took advantage of the of the chaos in Russia to declare their independence. They had to fight a war with uh, Russia. They also, at the same time, had to fend off uh, the Germans, who who also were trying to take advantage of that opportunity. And in 1920, they gained their independence. Um, Vladimir Lenin's Russia guaranteed them full sovereignty and and uh, said that you know we will no longer interfere with your uh, domestic affairs. You're your own country. And so then they had 19 years of independence from 1920 to 1939. And it's a mixed bag during this period. I would say they are relatively prosperous. They, per capita was growing. They had started to develop trade ties with the West, especially Britain. They had started to develop a reputation for entrepreneurship. At the same time, there was a little bit of a creeping authoritarianism. It's a it's kind of a strange word, but the but the history books strange phrase they use the phrase mild authoritarianism. <laughs> so there, you know, there was the president was Constantine Potts, and at the time he was basically trying to ward off maybe more nationalist elements, and he sort of consolidated power and uh, in a way that was not as, as as democratic, I think, as a lot of us would like. And so, you know, it's not all sunshine and roses, but they were relatively prosperous during this time period. Uh, and I would also say, you know, Potts was, he talked favorably of Mussolini and others, uh, but we should also remember that, you know, President Roosevelt during this time period was also speaking favorably of Mussolini. So it's kind of a kind of a dark period, maybe for the whole world in terms of creeping authoritarianism. So they weren't all that outside of the norm. So if we, I guess that's that's a useful context to think about sort of what happened. So they were independent for, you say, 19 years. So mm -hmm. really, what was the, how did the loss of independence take place? Was the first aspect of that sort of Nazi annexation? And then what the Soviets did, how did, what's the, what, what happened there? Yeah, it's kind of a confusing history. It's actually Soviet annexation, then Nazi, then back to Soviet. Then, okay. Yeah, so it starts... The, the the important date, red letter date, and this becomes important later for their independence, is August 23rd, 1939. So on that date, Herr von Ribbentrop, the German foreign minister, lands in Moscow. He is greeted by six giant swastikas that the Soviets had just repurposed from an anti-Nazi film studio <laughs> that now they are using to welcome their new allies. Ribbentrop is whisked over to the Kremlin, where he meets with Stalin himself and his Soviet uh, counterpart, Molotov. Molotov, by the way, got the job. He was, he was about, I think, six to nine months new on the job. He got the job because Stalin had fired the previous Soviet foreign minister for being Jewish as a conciliatory measure towards his new ally, Hitler. Ironically, Molotov himself would later lose his job because his wife was Jewish and Stalin himself was quite anti-Semitic. Okay, so anyway, they 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 signed the agreements of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, also known as the Soviet Nazi Pact. Afterwards, Stalin toasts to Nazi to Hitler's health. He, Stalin was kind of a teetotaler, but he he managed to drink for this occasion. And publicly, the the act the this agreement is a non-aggression agreement. But what's key is it contains secret protocols, secret protocols that were denied by the Soviet Union for the next five decades, well into the Gorbachev era. 
uh, and these secret, but they were they were the worst kept secret of the Cold War because they were the, those in the Baltic states knew about them within weeks. But the secret protocols basically agree to divvy up Europe. Germany gets Western Europe, and the Soviet Union gets Eastern Europe, with a line drawn down th through the middle of Poland. So this is August of 1939. By September 1939, the Nazis had invaded Poland from the west. The Soviets had, had invaded from the east. They met. They had a joint Nazi-Soviet parade in Brest-Litovsk. And then they moved to the Baltic states. So the next move was for the Soviet Union to position 160,000 troops on the border of Estonia. Uh, on the other side of the border, Estonia had 16,000 troops. So it's one, one to 10 ratio. Yeah. And then they start flying sorties over the largest towns in Estonia, Tallinn. Um, and they start saying, you know, we want, we'd like to you to become our friends, our allies. <laughs> And so they sort of become compelled to become their allies. They want to, they ask to station 25,000 troops in Estonia. And then within, and also Latvia and Lithuania, the other Baltic states. And then within months, they, the Soviets accuse the, the Balts of plotting against them. And so without any evidence. An interesting thing, by the way, is that the Estonians, historically, because of that history with the Balt, the extractive Germans, they actually their historic enemy was the Germans. They had more mm -hmm. to fear from the Germans than the than the mm -hmm. Soviets. But within it, it, that first year of occupation, that the, the by the Soviets, they managed to turn the people around. It was a very brutal occupation. So you know, long story short, basically, they then say, "Hey, you're plotting against us. You need to hold elections and form pro-Soviet cabinets." So these were remarkable elections. They were no secret ballots. They're public. In case, the election results were announced before the election had taken place. In another case, there was 120 percent uh, turnout. So, you know, pretty, pretty remarkable elections. And lo and behold, Estonia chooses, in, in quotes, to join the Soviet Union. So they are annexed to the Soviet Union essentially by force. Uh, the the vote to join in in the parliament there were armed red red army soldiers in the parliament when the Estonians cast that vote. So for the next five decades, the Estonians view this annexation as illegal. Western powers, Great Britain and the U.S. and Canada, never actually recognize this as a legal annexation. It is not. It's uh, considered an illegal annexation. So that's how they come to be. You know. It, you, your uh, listeners will know, of course, that Hitler, you know, it, Stalin's greatest blunder is sometimes considered to have been to trust Hitler. Hitler's greatest blunder was considered to have then tur uh, turned his back on his erstwhile ally, uh, Stalin. Uh, he does. He invades Russia. The, so the Germans then sweep through, are in control of Estonia for two years, and then later the, the Soviets sweep back through. And so it's this ping pong and, you know, you have real stories of people who are forced to host a German soldier in their house one week and then a Soviet soldier the next week. You know, it's, it, neither occupation really spared the Estonian people. It was a lot of misery all around. Well, I was going to ask that. So what I mean, you know, what were the scale of losses of, of, of life during that period in Estonia? I mean, during the during the wartime period was. It's extraordinary. I, I believe the the number is about a quarter of the population was lost either to yeah. death or 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 they escaped. So you can see this in a number of ways. So one thing that happened uh, was, of course, the Germans 
um, murdered uh, as many Jews as they could. Uh, many of the Jews escaped um, Estonia to the east. They perceived um, Russia to be safer. Uh, over the long run, that wasn't necessarily true for them because there was an anti-Jewish um, purge in the Soviet Union as well. But then they also brought in thousands of Jews from Western Europe and exterminated them on Estonian soil. And there are, you know, some some bright spots, Estonian heroes who hid Jews in their basements and, you know, tried to um, protect them. Um, one of the things that the Soviets did is as soon as the Red Army comes in, right, right with them is the predecessor to the KGB, the, what's called the NKVD. And they begin interviewing every Estonian over the age of 12. And they begin identifying, you know, anybody that they think could be an enemy of the people. Now, what's an enemy of the people? Of course, if you're rich or you, you know, are, are an entrepreneur, that's an enemy of the people. But also, you know, if you have such cosmopolitan pursuits as, you know, stamp collecting or you speak Esperanta, you know, that's considered cosmopolitan and not, not you're not likely to be a good socialist. So they ended up deporting about 10,000 uh, people. Uh, rounding them up and putting them, this is in the first the first occupation, rounding them up and putting them on uh, cattle cars, shipping them to what the Soviet press called the happier East, uh, where they joined um, about 17% of the Soviet uh, labor force with slave labor. So this is key. You know, you you hear about these people in the gulag and in the in the in the camps. They were actually helping to build the so the Soviet dream, the socialist dream of a more prosperous society, and it was run on slave labor. Um, and they also had this kind of idea that, you know, we'll talk about this later, but one of the problems with socialism, of course, is you have no way to know how exactly, you know, there's a knowledge problem. You don't exactly know what to make or how to make it. So they had sort of ridiculous ideas like, well, let's just reward people from making a certain, you know, number of tonnage of steel and or using a certain tonnage of steel. So they're very focused on inputs. Well, they, that same kind of weight count approach was also used in the slave labor. You know, th the idea was we just need to collect people so that they can run the system. And so let's round up as many people as we can. So the estimates are, you know, the, the families were divided. Women and children were separated from men. About 50% of the women died. About 94% of the men died in that first roundup. And this was only one roundup. You know, there's there were there was another one in 1949 to yep. try to encourage collectivization in agriculture. Well, that, that actually leads on quite nicely to what I wanted to to ask next, which was, so once the Soviets took over the country, did they basically implement the Soviet model in Estonia? Did they adapt it at all to local circumstances or was it basically just Estonia was sort of absorbed into the sort of greater Soviet system? And I wonder if you could maybe sort of detail the type of economic measures that were introduced as part of that 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 regime. Yeah, absolutely. So th the answer is a little bit complicated. In in essence, yes, they were sort of subsumed into the Soviet system. So that's one thing, you know, one thing to to note that's different from say Estonia and Poland or Hungary is Estonia wasn't a satellite state. It was part of the Soviet Union, as was Latvia mm. and Lithuania and mm. others. It was one of the 15 mm. republics. And the, the re, with, uh, within these republics, to kind of paraphrase Orwell, it's 
the Soviets viewed them as equals, but there was one that was more equal than the others, and that was the Russian Republic. This, the Soviets believed that Russia was a, had a superior system. And so part of the another rationale for deporting the Estonians um, throughout Russia was that then they could also import Russians because mm. the Russians, they believed, understood socialism better. Now, there was an Estonian joke at the time that said, how many five year plans does it take? for the Estonian standard of living to be reduced to the Russian standard of living. Because the truth was, throughout the entire Soviet Union, the, the Estonians were always wealthier, actually, than the Russians. They always were more productive because they had this these ties to the West, this history. Even within the sort of rigid central planning system of the Soviet Union, they managed to be in more productive industries that got higher compensation. They managed to meet their bonuses um, and get higher compensation for that. So they were always at a higher standard of living. But the, the I think two important sort of windows on how this was how the, the Soviets tried to impose socialism are in the home and on the farm. So start with a home. Their idea was that socialism needed to reach all the way into the family. And, you know, there's quotes from Lenin's wife talking about how, you know, there's a you, you, there's a problem if the family loves the children too much because the children then believe that they are the center of the universe or that they're, you know, they're, they're sort of too coddled. They need to understand that they're a cog in a broader system with the, in the entire socialist system. And so what they did was they collectivized households. So if you lived in a house where the average person had uh, more than nine square meters, so think about that, that's, that's you know, Three by three, that's a pretty small mm. spot, right? Uh, then more people were brought into your home. Your home was divided up. Uh, you might have four or five families living in one home, all using the same bathroom, the same kitchen. Uh, you'd have locks on the door, on the cabinets in the kitchen because people were trying to, you know, if they felt that they were being, you know, the other the other families were using their pots or whatever. And then you, you would, might have three generations living in a single bedroom in that house. And part of the reason for this was specifically to control the population. So they would, you know, bring in, if you were, again, among those people that were deemed by this regime to possibly be an enemy of the people, then they would make sure that there were NKVD or KGB agents in that house with you. So, you know, we quote people as saying, there's, there's people who were exiled who said actually living in a collective house was worse than exile because at least exile you're out in Siberia you're on your own nobody really is watching you you can you know dig a hole literally dig a hole in the ground and eat grass and you know it's a pretty miserable existence but you're kind of free in some weird way if you're in your home and you're constantly being surveilled you, there's no sense of freedom there so it's a really bizarre experiment and then the other way I think that, that illustrates it is the collective farms so here you know again the Soviets had already gone through a disastrous experiment with collectivization in agriculture. By some estimates, six to seven million people had died in famines in Ukraine and elsewhere. Just to put a you know point on it, if you're when you're talking, when you read uh, about a famine, you are reading about the worst of what humans do, the desperation, you know, people eating family members, eating children, eating dirt, parents telling children, please kill me and eat me. I mean, it's just, 
absolute, absolute the worst of what can happen, right? And he, they'd already been through this, and Stalin was still un, you know, un, unconvinced that this was a problem and still tried to in, introduce this in Estonia. So they uh, tried to get farmers to join collective farms where you'd, you might have three, 300 you know, farmers all joining together and we're all going to share our resources. And the, the Estonians didn't want to do it. So they then started a second round of deportations, this one in the countryside. So in one night, March 23rd, 1949, some 50 to 60,000 farmers are rounded up, about 14% of the farm population. They're put on American-made Studebaker trucks and sent east. And incentives matter, right? So, you know, before this night, about 7% of Estonians had joined collective farms. Afterwards, 70% had. You know, this was such a wrenching and awful experience that people were willing to join collective farms. And it didn't work. Thankfully, they did not experience the type of uh, deprivation that Ukraine did. Again, they were always more prosperous than almost any other part of the Soviet Union. But, you know, in the in the period before collectivization, Estonian farm production was growing at about 10 percent a year immediately after collectivization. And this is according to the Soviet data itself. It was collapsing at a rate of two percent a year. So it, it didn't work, but they did get what they wanted and they managed to force people into collectivization. Hmm. I mean, I thought this was one of the most, just going back to what you were saying about the, the family, I thought that this was actually one of the most powerful parts of the the book, reading it. The idea that surveillance played such a prominent role in this system. You know, so there's the, I guess there's always the, that joke about hell as other people, but th this really is a situation mm -hmm. where, you know, you are, at, it's not actually the, just that you, you have people living with you in that sense, you know, they're there almost to be watching what you're doing. And that was that that's really, it's really quite a compelling uh, discussion you have there about that. And I think it illustrates the idea that economic freedom and personal freedom are deeply intertwined. If you believe that you can control the means of production in an economy, you then have to control people. So, you know, in a very real sense, if you want to take over the banks, which they did as soon as they, they took over, then you you might have to you might have to shoot resistant bank owners, which they did. Mm. If you want to take over property, you're going to people are typically going to resist. You know, even Stalin himself said this, you know, people people are people, he said, <laughs> and they probably want their property. So we're going to have to use force to take it from them. So what what was left of the private economy? through this period? Was there any sort of private enterprise left? You know, sort of were all, was all of industry basically taken over by the state or were there sort of islands of, of private enterprise left in operation in Estonia? There, there were some islands and part of this is, is due to the fact that the Soviets themselves had sort of had to let that happen. So there is this weird, they have this weird idea towards blot. So blot was the, the Russian word for corruption. On the one hand, so what, what do they consider corruption? Corruption is like selling stuff on the black market. So on the one hand, of course, this is anti-socialist and this is something that is you know, a, a terrible offense. On the other hand, you, you, your factory is not going to meet the plan unless there is blot. It's the only way to attract, unless you look the other way and allow the top socialist managers 
to sell products on the black market, mm. you're not going to be able to attract them. It was a way to mm. essentially allow their wages to be above the, 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 the plan dictated wage. It was the only way for them to obtain some of the resources that they needed uh, in order to make stuff. So one way to think about it, you know, your listeners are, are obviously, you know, quite familiar, I'm sure, with the knowledge problem and, and the, the Austrian perspective on this, that if you're unguided by market-determined prices and people exchanging things, private property rights in, a, in an open market, then you're going to have the wrong prices. And if you have the wrong prices, you could, if prices are, are too low, you could have shortages. If they're too high, you could have surpluses. The interesting thing is there was a systematic bias throughout the Soviet Union. They weren't just you know, randomly low or high, they were typically low, too low. This is especially for consumer goods. And there's a reason why prices tended to be too low. And that's because the managers of these state in, in enterprises learned that if they set the, if, if the prices were too low, then they could, there would be a shortage and then they could purposely withhold goods and sell them on the black market for a higher price. And they could, mm. they could essentially find a way to personally profit from the way they're, they're, they're running their business rather than have to share the profits with the state. So it was, you know, as a result, meat, soap, rubber, ceramics, you name it, all of these things were systematically in short supply throughout the system. And part of this is because the system just couldn't work without the the planners looking the other way and permitting a little bit of blot and permitting some black markets. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, I don't know whether you're familiar with it, but there's a, there's a book from the early 1970s by Paul Craig Roberts called Alienation in the Soviet Economy. It's, it's largely been forgotten now, but it, but it shouldn't be because his analysis is basically that what were described as planned economies, in a sense, were not because full total central control simply cannot work anywhere. So what right. you had to have were basically selective tolerance of market mechanisms operating in what looks like a state controlled apparatus, because you simply cannot control an apparatus of that scale from the center. So right. you had the planners basically to tolerating uh, black markets because without those black markets, the system would have collapsed. Um, there simply wouldn't have been any uh, goods available um, for people to consume. So you had this strange situation where on the one hand they were tolerating black markets, but at the same time there was official rhetoric um, that the system was being let down by speculators or traitors right. to the system, this sort of thing. So the, this sort of people were sort of forced to live a lie on, That's right. on, on multiple levels. That's right. And yeah, that, that was another use for blot is you can, if uh, a factory is turning out shoddy products or if they're not meeting their meeting the plan, you can just say, well, this is a Western plot. It's people that are that are sabotaging the system. So it, there was a, a use for it. And economic uh, crimes were a common uh, crime that you could uh, accuse people of, and then they join the 17% of the <laughs> labor force that's slave labor. So there, there were, was a certain use for it. And then I think the other thing that's important to understand is that there is a change in strategy over the years. Um, mm. So, you know, the Stalinist years were very much about trying to rise at all costs, breakneck industrialization. And one strategy there was to specifically throttle consumption 
in order to channel more of the economy's resources into investment. And they did manage to invest three times as much as Westerners did. It just was invested in crappy products. So there was that strategy. By the 70s, you know, now think of the Khrushchev era, think of Brezhnev, think of uh, this is post the the, the Khrushchev and Nixon kitchen debates where mm-hmm. we're, they're sort of debating what, which system can outproduce the, the other. They then kind of switched strategies and tried to pump up consumer goods and really channel a lot. They were more interested in, in consumer goods, I think in part because, you know, Western, though they tried to stop Western radio and TV, it was the message was still getting in. And so they they felt compelled that they needed to try to help boost some consumption. But the only way they could do that was to go into deep debt. And so that created another problem. And that then created latent inflation and debt. And then the system kind of couldn't couldn't withhold itself. And they went back to shortages again. So let's let's move things forward. So you're saying that throughout the whole of this period, actually, through the Stalin period, through the sort of Khrushchev era, all through, really because of this historical legacy, within Estonia, the performance, although it was badly affected by the Soviet regime, was still better than other parts of the of the system. So it performed better than Russia or other parts of the, the regime. How did the perestroika uh, era play out in Estonia? And were there any differences there with the rest of the country, given that there was more of this sort of history of having a sort of previously autonomous period where there was more private enterprise or or what have you. Yeah, yeah. One thing, by the way, I should note is Estonia performed better also because the, the Russians did actually, the Soviets did actually permit them greater freedom. They sort of viewed Estonia as a shop window for the West. Mm-hmm. It was where it was a, it was it was where Westerners might encounter the Soviet Union first. And so they wanted to try they they permitted them greater economic freedom. They permitted them greater social freedom too. They were allowed to read books that were mm-hmm. not available even in Russia. Okay, so Perestroika. Perestroika had almost no impact, uh, not only on Estonia, but on really the rest of the Soviet Union, because mm-hmm. it was Gorbachev had no intention of actually reforming the system. However, so perestroika is reform. Glasnost yeah. is openness. Yeah. Glasnost yeah. did have an effect. So when, this is where these, it's important to contrast the experience of the satellite states with those that had actually been subsumed in the Soviet Union. So in the satellite states like, like Poland, they were they started protesting in 1981 you know this and this has a lot to do with the catholic church choosing a polish bishop as the the new pope and him visiting um pope john paul ii then visits uh poland and tells them be not afraid and be and have solidarity then a, a labor movement known as solidarity forms they really start protests and and what a big thing that happens the, the, the soviets crack down in poland but a big thing that happens is gorbachev renounces the, the Brezhnev doctrine, which is a formal doctrine that says, if you try to depart from, if you're one of the satellite states and you you depart from socialism, we'll invade you, which, you know, had been carried out in Czechoslovakia yeah. in 68 and also in Hungary in 54, I believe, and also in, in East Germany. So that allowed the satellite states to really start to gain independence. The Baltics are looking at all this 
They're looking at uh, Gorbachev win the Nobel Peace Prize, and yet he's still sending troops into the Baltic states and firing on and killing, you know, 14 people, I believe, in um, Latvia. So they're looking at all this and saying, when's it our turn? What's, what's going to happen? And the way that they make it their turn is not through perestroika, but through glasnost, through openness. And the way they start doing that is two, I, I think, two important things is one, they, they start openly talking and they start openly singing. <laughs> so the talk begins around, I, I mentioned the, the red letter date of, you know, August 23rd. In 1987, August 23rd, in a park in Tallinn, they start openly talking about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. It was a pretty bold move. Uh, one that was, by the way, kind of laid earlier in that spring when they started openly challenging the Soviets on their uh, environmental record. The Soviets mm -hmm. had a terrible record on the environment. All over Estonia, there's giant piles of um, phosphate um, that are choking the water system that are spreading sometimes radioactive material into the water. And the Soviets had a plan to do more phosphate mining, which by the way, if left to the open market, to the free market, to the uh, profit motive, they would have never done because the Estonian phosphate is not very rich. It's not very worth, <laughs> it's not worth the squeeze, right? The juice is not worth the squeeze, uh, but they weren't guided by the profit motive. Instead, they were guided by the central planning motive. And so they wanted to go forward. So anyway, they start pro protesting and it actually works. Then they start protesting around the, uh, the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And to their surprise, this under Glasnost, Gorbachev kind of lets them get away with it. Then they are they gather together in a spontaneous gathering at the singing grounds at the and they start singing and they start singing instead of love songs to Stalin and Hitler or Stalin and um, Lenin, which the Soviets had had required them to sing. They now start singing their traditional Estonian songs in the Estonian tongue, and they're singing about you know the Russian ruble crushing them, and you know they're they're. They're openly in protest in song. Uh, at one point, 300,000 people gather in the Estonian um, singing festival. Now, this is a small country. That's one in three mm. Estonians are gathered in one place singing sometimes quite angry songs about the Soviet Union. Um, mm. So it's in this environment that they really start to gain a little bit more of their, their voice, you know, pun intended, I guess. Uh, another extraordinary thing that they do, and this is all throughout the, so the the Baltic states, is what they call the Baltic Way or the Baltic Chain. So on the another anniversary of the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, I think this was 89, might be 88, they gather hands in a 670-mile human chain stretching across three countries, and they protest you know, quite effectively, they protest the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So that really opens, you know, they, they have, they make sure that they have, it's in 1989, they, they, they make sure that the Western cameras are on hand, they make sure that there's a helicopter on hand to show it from the air. Um, and that, you know, even at, at that point, Gorbachev is still saying that they're make, that they're lying and that there is, there was no secret protocols of the pact. But within a few months, he had to back down and admit that, yeah, there really were secret protocols. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to reflect back on that because I was I was a you know it's a long time ago, and I was a, a teenager at the time when a lot of that was happening. But there was a there was a sense that 
there were already those sort of movements happening in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and the Baltic states were almost like an island of that happening within the Soviet Union itself. Yep. There was already a sense that they were a sort of, you know, linchpin in the stability of that overall regime. Um, and so that's right. They, so, so did Gorbachev, they play a role? What kind of role did they play in the actual collapse of the Soviet system itself? You know, in the sort of 1990-91 period when that was when, you know, Soviet Russia itself sort of started to collapse as opposed to Eastern Europe. That's right. That's right. So that was, you know, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, um, while he was willing to let Poland go and Hungary go, this was the one thing he couldn't allow to happen because uh, it would mean uh, the disintegration of the Soviet Union. So Gorbachev was really quite opposed to that. So he did some things, you know, he he appointed his school, his great school friend, Veno Valjas, to be the head of Estonia. And they, he, Gorbachev summoned the Estonians to Moscow and he said, listen, you, you can't raise your voices too much. You, you know, do you understand me? <laughs> and he mm. says, you, you can, we're, I'm willing to talk, but only the the conversation has to take place within the the confines of socialism. You are going to remain part of the Soviet Union. You're going to remain socialist. Okay. So what ends up happening is he's put Gorbachev has pushed and pushed and pushed, and he finally does propose um, a new union, a, a new treaty that would sort of remake the Soviet Union into much more of a confederation. And his plan is to is to sign the. the signed this in August of 1991. And before he has a chance to do it, I think it might be the day before, the, the there's a coup against him. You know, hardline hardliners said, okay, Gorbachev is going too far. So they go to his daksha, they put him under house arrest, they declare the vice president to be the new president, and they say, okay, now, the communists are now back in charge. So just as the Estonians had taken advantage of the opportunity of the chaos in the in the Russian Revolution, they once again take advantage of this opportunity. So Lenin, you know, is supposed to have said there are years when nothing happens, and then there are weeks when decades happen. So mm -hmm. there are days in Estonia when a decade mm -hmm. happened, and these days are August twentieth through the twenty first, nineteen ninety one. And so what happens is, in under under this coup, the Soviets, the new Soviet leadership, communist leadership, sends dozens of tanks to Estonia, and they they go to the the TV tower in Tallinn. And remember, remember that connection between economic freedom and and social freedom. The first thing that you need to control if you want to control the economy is communication, is 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 the civil rights. And so the first place that they're going to try to shut down the Estonians is by controlling the TV tower. So you have this extraordinary drama take place in two parts of Tallinn, the, around the TV tower and then in the, the Estonian Supreme Council. And in the uh, TV tower, you have four people that are up in the top of the tower. And I think one of them is a security guard. The other two are like technicians. <laughs> and they get on the on the TV, they use the TV signal and say, Estonians, come help us. There's a dozen tanks that are coming our way. Hundreds of Estonians just show up with trucks, with cars, with 
just themselves and they surround the tower to protect the people inside. And the uh, Red Army arrives and they start pushing in and pushing in and pushing in. They get to the 23rd story of the tower. They're ready to break it in, break down the tower. The technician on the inside said, pulls out what he calls his trump card. And he says, if you break down the door, I'm going to pull the tower's fire suppression system. And it will flood the whole tower with this fire suppressant and it will kill everybody inside, which, by the way, interesting technology that Soviet technology that the fire suppression system would kill everybody. <laughs> but the the Soviets kind of are like, OK, let, let's talk about this. So that that buys them another like 10 hours to 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 think about it. Meanwhile, across town in the Supreme Council, uh, you've got all these different factions in the resistance movement, you know, people who want to or, or are more ready to have a sudden and, and solid break, other people who want a more gradual break. The biggest real debate at this point is, do we say that we're, in, we're, that we're revolting or do we just say that, look, this was never even a, a legitimate, we were never even a part of the Soviet Union. This whole five decades was, was yeah. illegal. And they negotiate and they get a, a unanimous vote uh, all factions come together to declare uh, Estonian independence. Hmm. So Estonia is the first republic to gain independence, to answer your question. They actually declared independence before Russia did. That Veno Valjas, the, the Gorbachev's childhood chum, he actually votes for independence, you know, at great risk to himself. Um, then, meanwhile, the coup falls apart. You know, famously, Yeltsin stands on top of the tank and, mm. and denounces the coup. The coup falls apart, and the the Red Army turns around and they take their tanks out, out of Talon, and the people are able to come down from the tower. So, just you know, an extraordinary couple of days. So Estonia declares independence. The next day, Russia declares independence from the Soviet Union. So really, the Estonians, you could say, kind of led the way there. But it really was a remarkable just few days in 1991. Oh, yeah, I, I, I do. I don't remember, you know, all of the details, but I remember the atmosphere around that time very, very well, very much so. And, that, and it, yeah, it was it was a remarkable time. So I wonder if we could just just close out by reflecting on what has happened, obviously, in the 30 odd years really since those momentous events. And if you look at Estonia's economic performance, I mean, in many ways, it looks to have been a great success. Um, yep. There's been quite spectacular economic growth, the sort of democratic stability, all of those sorts of indicators seem to be in place. Yep. I wonder whether you could say a little bit about how well it has done, but also reflect on what the ex Estonian experience tells us about this whole process of transition, because as people will be aware, there's this whole debate about when you are having a sort of transition from that kind of top-down economic control to something that's more market-oriented, do you do it incrementally or do you yep. have a kind of shock therapy approach? Yep. And there's lots of debates about, you know, shock therapy some people say is what happened in in the russian case and it didn't work out very well how does the estonian es experience compare to that and are there any sort of lessons that we you think we can learn from from the kind of transition that took place in estonia 
Yeah. Okay, so you know, one thing to, to, to maybe start with is with what's called a Washington consensus. And it, it's called a consensus for a reason. Uh, there really wasn't a lot of intellectual debate or political debate at the time about what needed to be done. Almost everybody mm -hmm. agreed, yes, we got to move to a market-oriented economy, yeah. reduce government spending, privatize, reduce taxes, make for a broader tax base, open up to free trade, all of that. What was, there was quite a bit of intellectual debate, and I, I think reasonable people can, can disagree on this, is how quickly do you do it? And critics, of course, called it shock therapy. Others like Jeff Sachs said, look, the gradual approach makes about as much sense as trying to gradually shift from driving on the right side of the road to the left side of the road, where, you know, first you have the trucks do it, and then a few hours later you have the cars do it. Like, you just mm -hmm. got to switch. Um, and here, if you if you look at the empirical evidence and if you look at the case studies like Estonia, I think the evidence is quite clear that moving quickly now it, it was superior. So there were, if you look, for example, we we cited in the in the book, but if you look at papers by Lawson and Lawson or Greer and Greer, one is a father son duo, one is a husband wife duo. Um, they gather data using the economic freedom of the world index show how quickly countries move and it's very clear the the quicker movers like estonia fared better so here's can where I just, yeah can i just come in there that so one of the the problems though isn't it is is there's a whole question about whether the countries that have been more successful and you could include perhaps poland in this as well as well as the, the baltic countries is that these were the the countries that actually prior to the Soviet experience already had a sort of culture or set of institutions that were more already more sympathetic to a market economy or to entrepreneurship. Whereas in Russia itself, there was a much longer established tradition of central control from the Tsarist period or going way back, you know, through to the sort of feudal state of the, the economic order there for, for, for centuries. So couldn't it have been the case that, you know, the countries that move quickest also happen to be the ones that already had more of a sort of memory of what capitalist or more capitalist system was like? So you couldn't necessarily conclude that, you know, it, it worked in the Russian case, even if it worked in, in somewhere like Poland or Estonia. Yeah, I think that's a fair point to make. You know, all these things are intertwined. You've got culture and institutions and individual people and geography, and it's all it's all messy and it's hard to try to try to separate it out. I I think I would I hundred percent would emphasize that the culture matters, and the Estonians had already developed a, a you know a pretty market oriented culture, even if it was latent for five decades. I think they also. There's a there's a sort of Estonian or a Baltic state sort of nationalism, which nationalism obviously can have a very terrible role, <laughs> right in the in the world. But in this case, in some ways, it was it was a little bit beneficial because it made them so distrustful of anything that was Russian or Soviet that they were the 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 large body of the population was willing to go pretty quickly and pretty far in the opposite direction. So I do think mm -hmm. that does matter. And, you know, this gets into broader questions of how how much does like, you know, there are other countries in the world, obviously, Southeast Asia that have embraced markets in a way 
that people would have thought was extremely would be really ex- extremely surprising if you went back to 1970 and you said mm. you know what was if you told people what was going on in South Korea and Singapore today and so how much of that is undergirded by certain cultural ad- attitudes it's it's messy and I and I I 100% agree culture pride has something to do with it too so how how do you how would you say Estonia has compared to other parts of Eastern Europe. I mean, if we take out the, the Russia itself, if we if we compare the Estonian experience to, is it sort of analogous to what was the former Czechoslovakia, now the Czech, Czech Republic and Slovakia? Is it comparable to to Poland, but say different to somewhere like Romania? What what are the? How do you see the sort of comparators within that group outside of of the sort of Russian sphere itself? Yeah. So it's really pretty remarkable. So Estonia, and I should say Latvia and Lithuania are right behind Estonia in terms of these reforms. They are really neck and neck. Uh, So it is basically the free, the the, uh, most prosperous of the former Soviet countries. It has the lowest poverty rate of any of of the former Soviet uh, countries. It's one-tenth of the average poverty rate for the former Soviet states. It's per capita GDP is twice that of the average in the former Soviet states. If you want to measure economic freedom, you know, they were back in 1990, they were the 92nd most free, economically free country in the world. By 2004, they were the 12th. And they basically hung in that, you know, top 10 to 12 range for the last 24 years. So it's pretty Mm -hmm. remarkable, not just economic freedoms, but also social freedoms. There's another index, the human freedom index. By that standard, they're they're third in the in the world. So they they have more startups per capita uh, than any other country in Europe. They have more unicorns, so startups valued at a billion dollars or more than any other country in Europe. They have, you know, Skype is a household name, is a is an Estonian company. They've really built themselves as a, especially they've embraced technology. Very, they have, they were the world's first e-government where you could vote, start a business, register property, et cetera, et cetera, all online. Um, they have the the lowest corruption levels of any former Soviet country. And in fact, they have lower corruption levels, corruption perception levels than the United States. They're comparable to Canada. The, the, if you want to look at life expectancy. So uh, in 1960, the Estonian life expectancy was 69 years. And by 1994, it had actually fallen to 67.9. But then you zoom forward and they've there it's now 78.7 years so it's you know just completely turned around if you want to look at infant mortality rates in the book we talk quite a bit about finland because estonia and finland have a, a lot of similarities except for the institutional divergence you know back at, at the time of the of the break from socialism the finnish um infant mortality rate was three times the Soviet infant mortality rate. Now the Estonians have a lower infant mortality rate than the Finns. It's amazing. So yeah. really by almost any measure, it's yeah. it's out, outperformed its peers. Well, Matt, it's been really good to talk to you. I think we should probably probably wrap up the conversation now, but I've really enjoyed that. And I thoroughly recommend that people who are listeners to the podcast check out this book in the Realities of Socialism Project 
on Estonia, but also the other books in this series. There's one on Poland, and there's also, I understand, volumes on Sweden and Denmark, which, although they are not socialist countries, really engage this question of what is meant by the term socialism in a situation where it's often equated basically with welfare states as opposed to planned economies, which is a very significant distinction that needs to be made. But it's been great to to talk to you, Matt. And yeah, I hope we can talk to you again in the future. So thanks very much for appearing on the Governance Podcast. Thank you so much. It's uh, been a pleasure. Thank you.